Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. Thanks to Feels for supporting Muller, she wrote. Feels is a better way to feel better. For 50% off your first offer plus free shipping, go to feels.com slash MSW. F-E-A-L-S dot com slash MSW. And thank you to Switchcraft for supporting the podcast. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure style narratives, and thousands of magical match three levels. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. And today, we have information on Tom Barrick possible superseding indictments and other co-conspirator indictments. And I have an interview with Vicki Ward and her new substack, Vicki Ward Investigates. And we're going to talk about Jared Kushner's contact with Mohammed Bonsa, Mohammed bin Salman, with regards to our reporting on MSW from 2017 and 2018, that he sold U.S. intelligence secrets, Kushner did, to the Saudis in exchange for a recent $2 billion investment he just received from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, against the advice of the that fund's board, by the way, but despite the multiple issues, including bad optics. And when Mohammed Bonesaw says, you know, when the Wealth Fund for them, you know, says, hey, 
hey, guy who murdered Jamal Khashoggi, it's going to make you look bad to hang out with Jared Kushner. That's you're that's bad when you're the bad optics in the MBS world. Um, and, and despite the multiple issues with giving Kushner $2 billion, MBS overrode the board's concerns and sent his fledgling investment company $2 billion. Now, it's important to understand the backdrop of the lobbying by Tom Barrick for the UAE and the Middle East when we consider that payoff, along with Paul Manafort and Bannon's role. As you know, this is all connected. It goes all the way back to episode, I think, six of Mueller, she wrote on the kitchen table days when we talked about the Mideast Marshall Plan set up by KT McFarlane, Mike Flynn, Bud McFarlane, and his friend Copson, who he was texting on the dais as Donald Trump was being sworn in. That's Mike Flynn. So all of this is connected in this lobbying scheme. And as we know, Tom Barrick was indicted on 951 charges. That's espionage light. That's much worse than a regular uh, 18 U.S. I think it's 18 U.S. Code 6, uh, 611, a regular FARA charge, but 951 instead. And we'll see what else comes out of that. Uh, I also have another story about Sergey Lavrov, our good old friend Sergey Lavrov, Oleg Deripaska, and a sex worker, and a trip to Japan in 2018. And then, of course, I will discuss sabotage and the Fantasy Indictment League. So without further ado, let's jump in with just the facts. All right, first up from Michael Weiss at New Lines Media. He says, it might have been any collection of satisfied diners posing with a grateful chef and waitstaff outside a Tokyo restaurant. But this one was marked by the presence of three influential Russians, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's longtime foreign minister, Oleg Deripaska, a controversial oligarch close to Putin. We know who we know all about Oleg. And Gennady Rovner, a former oil executive and oil and gas industrialist. Posing with the three Russians is Angelo Ku, chairman of the China Development Foundation of Taiwan, a country with which Russia has no formal relations. The photograph can be geolocated to March 20th or 21st, 2018, based on travel records previously obtained by Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and his anti-corruption foundation. During those dates, Lavrov was on an official visit in Japan, during which he famously implied that UK authorities were holding Sergei and Yulia Skripal against their will. Russian military intelligence officers had poisoned the Skripals with Novichok weapons-grade nerve agents two weeks earlier. Two weeks before this picture was taken. Another photo includes Lavrov's longtime interpreter and aide speaking about the official nature of his visit. Also of interest are two of the retinue's female consorts. Standing to Lavrov's right in the image is Svetlana Polyakova, a sometime actor, restaurateur, and employee at Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And also his mistress. Sandwiched between Lavrov and Deripaska, and evidently the latter's companion on the trip, Deripaska's, is a woman in her early 20s named Ekaterina Lobonova. In collaboration with The Insider... New Lines' Michael Weiss has identified Labanova as a Russian model, erotic model. She would not be the first porn model or sex worker Deripaska has traveled the world with, although she is the first to be publicly seen with the U.S.-sanctioned oligarch in the company of Russia's top diplomat, sanctioned in February for being directly responsible for Russia's unprovoked and unlawful further invasion of Ukraine. And of course, we know about the multiple 
sex workers that Deripaska, you know we're pro-sex work here, that Deripaska has had on his boat, for example, Nastya Rybka. She made a tape of the one of the Russian prime ministers getting a handoff from Oleg Deripaska of the information that Kalimnik brought to him that Kalimnik got at the Havana Cigar Bar in the 666 Fifth Avenue building from Paul Manafort in Kushner's building. But anyway, this is a different one. This is a different mistress. New Lines reached out to Maria Zakharova, a spokesperson for the Russian Foreign Ministry, and they ignored the request. Lobanova is a prolific erotic model with her explicit photos ornamenting porn sites with names such as Naked.me and psex.com. In a particularly steamy shot, she's presented reclining on an embroidered black sofa, completely naked, save for stockings and shoes. Her talents are advertised in a word salad of broken English under the category of young curly blonde girl. And the attendant ID number is listed as well. Lobanova shows lewd and lust desires, the ad reads, going on to describe her as feeling like a genuine whore who wants to be shagged caressingly. Lobanova's identity was verified using facial recognition software. New Lines was also able to confirm the date of the photograph, which has previously not appeared publicly by checking flight data for Polyakova and Rofner. Both were in Japan on March 20th and 21st. Record show. Okay, so we've established that. While Lavrov's official visit to Japan was a matter of public record, the fact that he was now accompanied by Deripaska was not known until now. So there's the bit of news here. It doesn't matter who he was with or what she does for a living. Oleg Deripaska was there with Lavrov. Two weeks after the Skripals were poisoned, the exact circumstances of the group's reunion in Tokyo remain unclear, but the photograph confirms previous reporting about Lavrov and Polyakova's extracurricular activities that he has a mistress, as well as Deripaska's penchant for going overseas with high-ranking Russian officials in the company of young women. In 2017, Navalny released a video showing that in August 2016, here we go, Deripaska sailed to Norway aboard his superyacht Eldon with the Belarusian sex worker Anastasia Vashukevich known as Nastya Rybka. In attendance, too, was Sergei Pirkodo, Russia's deputy prime minister, who had previously served in various government roles beginning in Boris Yeltsin's administration in the 90s. Like Lavrov, Pridoko's bailiwick is international affairs and eyebrow-raising liaisons with Deripaska. In the video that uh, Nastya Rybka recorded and posted on her Instagram account, the oligarch is shown discussing the deterioration of U.S.-Russian relations, primarily as a function of then-U.S. Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs, Victoria Newland, who Deripaska said hates Russia. Navalny alleged that the oligarchs hosting uh, Prikodo on his boat and also on his private jet constituted a bribe, one born out of Prikodko's lavish country palace in Moscow and Moscow apartment. So he's also got that going for him. The costs are both far exceeding his modest state salary. <laughs> as most oligarchs. Navalny also linked to the recording captures offhandedly um, by Nastya Rybka and written up with thinly veiled references to the relevant parties in her book, Diary of the Seduction of a Billionaire to Russia's Interference in the 2016 Presidential Election. As I said, according to Navalny, Deripaska, who was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2018 because of Russia's seizure of Crimea, works as an information gatherer for the Kremlin and its security services. Such a plenipotentiary role was most famously on display in his dealings with Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's former campaign chair and corrupt lobbyist on behalf of Ukraine's pro-Russian government, headed by Viktor Yanukovych. As we know, Manafort owed Deripaska, it says $10 million here, but I believe it was 14 for a failed joint business venture 
and likely repaid it in kind in the form of private briefings about the state of the Trump campaign, which Navalny and others have said were intended for more influential audiences at the heart of the Russian government. As we know, Manafort was convicted in 2018 on multiple counts of tax evasion, bank fraud, failure to disclose hidden foreign bank accounts, and conspiracy. Sentenced to seven and a half years in prison, he was pardoned by Donald Trump in 2020, December. His business partner, Konstantin Kalimnik, Russian intelligence officer, according to U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, passed sensitive Trump campaign polling data to Deripaska, presumably with the same intent. The Ukraine-born Kalimnik is currently wanted by the FBI on charges of obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice. Nasty Ribka was arrested in Pattaya, Thailand, as we know, in February 2018 for being a sex coach. She offered more details about Russia's meddling in American democracy in exchange for asylum in the U.S. I'm ready to give you all the missing puzzle pieces. Support them with videos and audios regarding the connections of our respected lawmakers with Trump, Manafort, and the rest. I know a lot. I'm waiting for your offers. I'm waiting for you in a Thai prison. She never received asylum. After being released and then arrested in Russia, probably at Deripaska's orchestration, she was released two days later amid reports that Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko intervened on her behalf. Now, uh, Polyakova has been romantically linked to Lavrov, going back to his mistress, since the early 2000s. Her identity was disclosed in 2014 when she received a religious award from the Russian Orthodox Church in the presence of the long-serving foreign minister, Lavrov. She traveled with Lavrov extensively over the years to about 60 countries. In addition to Japan, she went to Italy with him, Portugal, France, and Switzerland. Some trips have been an official uh, Russian diplomatic business, some not. According to the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project... Polyakova even appeared in cell phone address books under his last name. Lavrov, 72, is still legally married to Maria Lavrova, with whom he has a daughter, although his relationships with uh, Polyakova is said to approach that of a common-law second marriage. Fine. Fine. Don't care. Lavrov's unofficial wife is also rich, far wealthier than one might expect of a Russian bureaucrat or the owner of a large... A uh, successful, unsuccess- a largely unsuccessful restaurant, <laughs> real estate registered. Yes, to talk about a front, right? That's Walter White's car wash right there. Real estate registered in her family's name is worth close 14- to fourteen million. Um, these include an apartment in Moscow's elite Golden Mile neighborhood and one in Sochi, where she and Lavrov have vacationed together. One property that has gained scrutiny in light of Russia's war in Ukraine is Kensington in Kensington, London, and is registered to PPK Investments Ltd a company owned by Polyakova's daughter, Polina Kovaleva. In 2016, then just 21, Kovaleva entered into a 999-year lease for that apartment in the Tony London uh, postcode for $6.2 million in cash. Cash. Around that time, her mother was photographed with Lavrov, Deripaska, and Lobanova in Tokyo. Kovaleva was enrolled in a master's program at Britain's Imperial College in London, The Financial Times noted she has worked as an intern in junior roles at the Russian state-owned bank VTB. The commodities trader Glencore and the Saudi state oil company, Saudi state oil company, Saudi Aramco. Huh. Hmm. Glencore. Aramco. Glencore, by the way, is one of the the commodities trader that got the commission for selling off Rosneft piece by piece. They're still couple million dollars missing from that transaction and we all know about vtb on march 24th 2022 the uk government included kovaleva whom it described as lavrov's stepdaughter in its sanctions list freezing her assets in london 
including her Kensington apartment, and banning her from traveling to and from the country. Kovaleva revealed her own relationship with Deripaska on social media once her since-deleted Instagram, which she posted once on, on Instagram, but that's, you know, her whole Instagram has been deleted now. She uh, was shown lounging in his villa in Sardinia and aboard one of his yachts. So just an interesting connection there. And now it's all sort of coming out with, with, with these brand new, really super harsh Russian sanctions because of the invasion. And of course, we can't talk about Oleg Deripaska without talking about Manafort. As Marcy Wheeler reminds us, Paul Manafort was working with Tom Barrack on a Trump energy speech at issue in the Tom Barrack indictment. That suggests that one thing Manafort did for one of the guys that got him hired, the other was Roger Stone, but one of those things was to cater campaign policy to him. The complaint originally charged against um, alleged Barack co-conspirator Rashid al-Malik on June 25, 2019, obtained just five days after the FBI interviewed Barrack, which, according to the new indictment, would have alerted them Barrack was trying to hide this relationship. It, pro it provides more detail on Manafort's role in that energy speech and others and other events that Manafort had a role in relating to Barack's ties to the United Arab Emirates. And we'll get more on that later. But let's take a look at some Wall Street Journal reporting out this week. Put a pin in that. And, and let's talk about this. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, wearing shorts at his seaside palace, sought a relaxed tone for his first meeting with President Biden's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan last September. The 36-year-old Crown Prince ended up shouting at Mr. Sullivan after Mr. Sullivan brought up the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. The prince told Sullivan he never wanted to discuss that matter again, and the people familiar with the exchange, that's what they told the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. And the U.S. could forget about its request to boost oil production. That's what he told Mr. Sullivan. Hmm. The relationship between U.S. and Saudi Arabia has hit its lowest point in decades, with Biden saying in 2019 the kingdom should be treated like a pariah over human rights issues such as Khashoggi's murder. The political fissures have deepened since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Senior Saudi and U.S. officials agree. The White House wanted the Saudis to pump more crude, both to tame oil prices and to undercut Moscow's war finances, but they haven't budged. They keep it in line with Russian interests. Prince Mohammed wants foremost to be recognized as the de facto Saudi ruler and future king. And I want you to remember that when we talk about MBN with Vicky Ward in a little bit. MBS... The crown prince runs the country's day-to-day -day affairs for his ailing father, King Salman bin Abdulaziz al Saud, but Biden hasn't yet met or spoken directly with the prince. Last summer, the president told Americans to blame low Saudi oil output for rising gas prices. After the publication of this Wall Street Journal article, Adrian Watson, a White House National Security Council spokeswoman, reiterated Biden's stated commitment that the U.S. would support the kingdom's territorial defense she cited diplomatic achievements in recent weeks, such as condemnation by Persian Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, of Russians, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. She said Mr. Sullivan didn't discuss oil production with Prince Mohammed at their September meeting and that there was no shouting. So they're denying that allegation. A Saudi official at the kingdom's Washington embassy said publication of this are upon publication of this article online that the relationship between U.S. and the kingdom remains strong. He called the meeting between Mr. Sullivan and Prince Mohammed cordial and respectful. That was a Saudi official at the embassy in Washington, by the way. The, the, the risk, of course, for the U.S. is that Riyadh will align more closely with China and Russia, or at least remain neutral on issues of vital interest to Washington, as it has on Ukraine. 
Now, the U.S.-Saudi partnership was built on the premise that the American military would defend the kingdom from hostile powers to ensure the uninterrupted flow of oil to world markets. In turn, successive Saudi kings maintained a steady supply of crude at reasonable prices, with only occasional disruptions. But the economic underpinnings of the relationship has changed. The Saudis no longer sell much oil to the U.S. They're the biggest supplier to China. That's where their interests are, reorienting Riyadh's commercial and political interests, right? Don't need us anymore. And U.S. officials, including White House Middle East coordinator Brett McGurk, have visited the kingdom repeatedly to try to heal that breach with an eye on addressing Saudi concerns about security threats from Iran and the Houthi rebels. Iran backs in Yemen. Yet, with Mr. Biden opposed to any broad concessions to the Saudis, the officials acknowledge making only really modest progress. And with that in mind, and with the Tom Barrack indictment for espionage light in mind, and the looming superseding indictments in that case in mind, let's listen to this interview with Vicki Ward, author of Kushner, Inc. I talked to her earlier this week on The Beans, and it's really appropriate to play here if you haven't heard it. And we'll have that interview right after this quick break. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's AG. Thanks for supporting Muller, She Wrote. Today's episode is brought to you by Switchcraft. It's my new favorite mobile game. Most match three games are fun, but very similar, and there's really no storyline. Occasionally, there's changes in themes or characters, or you might get a new, you know, challenge on a level. But the format remains the same, and there's really no compelling story to keep you going, to keep you interested. And that's until now. Switchcraft is an innovative take on match three games. Your choices and your actions reveal a story like choose your own adventure of this beautiful, magical, gripping graphic novel. Switchcraft features TV-worthy writing, a choose that choose your own adventure style narrative, it's so cool, and thousands of magical match three levels. The art is stunning, I really love it. The characters are amazing. They make the game a delight. It's original and refreshing. There's over 85 characters, and they're from a variety of cultural backgrounds that are featured in the story. There's a lot of representation here, including LGBTQ+, differently abled characters. It's really awesome. The interactive storyline offers thousands of levels to explore. The game never gets boring because of the intriguing plot. I'm just hooked on finding out what's going to happen next in the story. Because, see, the story begins with the disappearance of your best friend from witchcraft school. So you have to solve the mystery of her disappearance using your magical match three skills. It's really awesome. Download Switchcraft for free right now and unlock the magical mystery. And today's show is also brought to you by Feels. You know, feels CBD. CBD isn't about what you feel, it's about what you don't feel. And that's stress and anxiety and pain. Feels is a better way to feel better. Keep your head clear and you'll feel your best all day long with Feels Premium CBD. As you know, CBD reduces pain, anxiety, and stress, and it does it naturally with no hangover and no addiction. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and you can feel the difference within minutes. And here's what's cool, because every person's dose of CBD is different. So Feels has set up a free CBD hotline where you can talk to a person to help figure out what dose is right for you. Feels customer service will ensure you get the most out of your CBD. Feels is safe. It's a natural remedy without harmful side effects that has helped me relieve pain, alleviate nervousness, and reduce sleeplessness. Best of all, it's conveniently delivered to your door hassle-free. And a monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You don't have to worry about it. Don't make self-care hard, right? Make it easier. That's what Feels does. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel at any time. I definitely recommend giving it a try. So go to feels.com slash MSW. You'll get 50% off your first order. Half off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash MSW. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody. Welcome back. So as you know, on Sunday on Mueller, She Wrote, I talked about this $2 billion investment by 
Mohammed bin Salman to Kushner's, I guess, investment firm, of which he has no experience. Then we talked about it again on Monday on The Daily Beans, especially about a piece penned by Vicki Ward from Vicki Ward Investigates. That's vickyward.substack.com. And I said, you know what? I need to talk to Ms. Ward about this. So joining me today is Vicki Ward. Hi, Vicki. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to speak to you. I mean, you you wrote the book on Kushner. Literally, it's called Kushner, Inc. Everybody can pick it up wherever books are sold. And in your piece, you talk about three well-placed sources that have information on why perhaps or why most definitely <laughs> Kushner was granted this two billion dollars against the advice of everyone at the at the Saudi Wealth Fund at the board of directors saying, look, this is bad optics. Uh, he doesn't have any skills. This isn't a real fund, basically. And it was MBS who personally overrode that decision so that the $2 billion could find its way into the pocket of Jared Kushner. Can you talk a little bit about, because we all kind of came, we're talking about this in, in early 2018, about things that had transpired in 2017, about a trip to Riyadh and traitors to the crown. Can you talk a little bit about these sources, what you were able to find out and publish on your Substack? Yes. So Alison, just, you know, there are two Substacks. So, um, you know, I wrote the first piece on Friday and I updated it this morning with legal documents. What they show is that back in 2017, in the first days of the Trump administration, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, was not the crown prince of Saudi Arabia yet. A man called Mohammed bin Nayef, his cousin, known as MBN, was. Mohammed bin Nayef was considered a great friend, ally, and hero um, by US intelligence. The CIA even gave him a medal for all the American lives he had saved since 9-11. He used to give us the flight numbers of bombs that Al-Qaeda terrorists would be sending over to America. He was also considered a moderate. He was the man that the US intelligence agencies wanted to see eventually become the ruler of Saudi Arabia. Enter MBS, comes to the White House, if you remember, in March 2020. I know from legal documents that I put up on Vicky Ward Investigates on Substack this morning that MBN realized that MBS was plotting with Jared Kushner to basically depose him. And MBS also knew, and he and Jared Kushner had conversations about it, this is in legal documents, that MBS did not have the support of the three top US intelligence agencies. That would be the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA. MBN also, according to my sources, heard that Jared Kushner and MBS were coming up with a plan that would involve money. He told people he trusted that one day we would see payment for Kushner's help to MBS to get MBN deposed. We know, again, there are documents showing this, that in May, MBN hired a lobbyist to try to get to Trump to shore up support in the White House. That plan did not work. A month later, MBS overthrew MBN. MBN was 
put under house arrest. And in 2020, he has been disappeared, Mm -hmm. not heard from again. And, And yet this story sort of played out back in 2017 and was kind of, it played out in plain sight. And yet so many other things, I think, in Saudi Arabia distracted us. But my sources tell me that the bulk of the $2 billion that Jared Kushner was given to by MBS recently to invest, as you say, even though Jared Kushner has no track record as a money manager, (laughs) was basically payback for getting rid of MBN. Now, how did the... I want to ask you about Jared's security clearance or lack thereof or et cetera. But before we get to that, talk a little bit about the distraction you just mentioned, because during that whole time, we had somehow a falling out with Qatar, even though we have CENTCOM there on one of our main military bases there. And then there was the, the, the Qatar blockade put in place and then it was mysteriously removed and then there was a fund that mysteriously bailed out Kushner's 66 Fifth Avenue building backed by Qatari funds. And, and the cutters are like, whoa, we didn't even have any idea about that. And that was sort of all going on in the background, sort of subsumed underneath this entire coup d'etat that was happening in Saudi Arabia. How did that play a role? Well, so, you know, Kushner Inc., I focused very heavily on the, on, on the blockade of Qatar because you know, it to me, it it gave the appearance that Jared Kushner was running our foreign policy purely for the sake of his real estate family business with zero concern for American national security. Because as you point out, Qatar is where our airbase, the Al-Udaid airbase is. That is our security in the region. So what is interesting is the Qatari blockade happened about a, a few weeks after the state visit to Saudi Arabia in May of 2017. That state visit was supposed to be about, you know, collaboration and security in the Gulf. And yet weeks after, suddenly the Saudis and the Emiratis, two other countries, are blockading their neighbor and rival, Qatar. As I reported in Kushner Inc., What was very strange about that was that neither Secretary of State Rex Tillerson nor the Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis knew anything about it and were horrified. They were in Australia when they heard that Qatar was being blockaded and they heard that someone from the White House had given a green light to this and they quickly discovered that that someone was not Donald Trump. So they assumed that it was Jared Kushner. Now, you know, Jared Kushner, we know, had forged this very tight bond with MBS. He several events then, you know, then go on in Saudi Arabia that are quite troubling while this blockade goes on, including MBS's roundup of other Saudi royals in the Ritz Carlton, you know, and, and we know from reports and open sources that Jared Kushner spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman right before that roundup happened. But fast forward to March, the next year, Mohammed bin Salman again appears in Washington and he asks Donald Trump for money to support his war in Yemen. That meeting did not go well. Trump humiliated Mohammed bin Salman. The Qataris saw an opportunity 
and the Emir of Qatar appeared in Washington to see President Trump shortly afterwards and said, you know, I've got lots of money. You know, I'd love to help America, but I've got this problem with this blockade. And very shortly after that meeting, two things happened, short succession. The blockade, uh, the, the US support for the blockade of Qatar was lifted. And as you say, Jared Kushner's family business was bailed out with a deal that made no economic sense by a Canadian real estate business whose main outside best investor is Qatar. Now, you know, and, and around this time, while all this was going on, Mohammed bin Salman described Jared Kushner as, yes, being in my pocket. Mm. But he also described him as, quote unquote, the double dipper, because it seemed that Jared was willing to take Saudi funds and Qatar's funds. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But what I will say now, to your point about distraction and going back to that time, I think, you know, I certainly, when I was reporting Kushner Inc., was so focused on the importance of the blockade because that really was a threat to American security and why Jared Kushner could possibly have given a green light to the Saudis to do that, that, uh, you know, I'm only lear recently learning, very recently learning, that that was in fact a deliberate distraction to take away from the, the, the main headline, which was that, of course, Jared Kushner had helped Mohammed bin Salman depose his cousin, MBN. And MBN said, you know, two people he trusted, you're going to see that money will have changed hands if, if their plan works. Hmm. And <laughs> whilst you mentioned it, the security clearance, MBN was, was really uh, valued by American intelligence. And I am told that this is why our intelligence agencies went apoplectic when MBN was deposed and were adamant that Jared Kushner not be given a top secret security clearance. Yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, he's got so many dealings with this, so many uh, foreign agencies, legal or not, that makes you susceptible and, and compromisable. But talking a little bit about maybe some of the other players that were lobbying on behalf of the United Arab Emirates, UAE, Saudi Arabia at the time, I know like the number one go-to was Tom Barrick to begin in, in the early days of the Trump administration, even before the transition. And then, of course, we had American Media Inc., right? Pecker and putting out that glossy magazine photo about the new leadership in, in the Middle East and how wonderful it was. And then on the third hand, we had Flynn trying to work with some folks in the NDI, including KT McFarlane or McFarlane and Bud McFarlane trying to get the Middle East Marshall Plan going, where we would give nuclear reactor secrets to Saudi Arabia to build reactors and then send our troops in or maybe Eric Prince troops, I don't know, to guard them somehow to colonize, quote unquote, the Middle East. So there was a lot going on with lobbying on behalf of this alternate, you know, set of leadership in the Middle East. And, and I was wondering if, if that's connected at all or if these are just sort of running in parallel. I think it's all, it's all connected, right? You know, you, you mentioned um, the Emirates, UAE and Abu Dhabi. I mean, 
you know, you have to remember, I think, that Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, was very much the mentor of MBS. It was in MBZ's interest for MBS to lead, to become the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia over Mohammed bin Nayef. And MBZ, you will remember, arrived very early in the tr- during the transition to meet with Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner, Flynn. And, you know, they, they saw in the Trump White House people that they could do business with. And I think there were all sorts of agendas, some of which you have accurately outlined. And, and it was only, I think, you know, and I, I think they were quite successful, actually, in their marketing campaign. I mean, they got that state visit, as you mentioned, Tom Barrack, who's now, you know, basically has been, you know, charged with uh, being an undeclared foreign agent, basically for the United Emirates. So we'll see, we'll see what happens there. But I I think their marketing campaign went very well until actually the roundup in the Ritz-Carlton. I think there were, there were reports that that was so brutal that that was problematic. And then, of course, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was just the absolute bridge too far as, as far as the United States was concerned. Yeah. And we didn't run any of the checks per the Magnitsky Act that we right. were supposed to do. I know Donald was supposed to respond within 120 days and he, he failed to do that. That is a, a result of a successful lobbying campaign. And, and then, of course, we have the $110 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia that circumvented Congress with the help of Mike Pompeo, which I'm sure is another successful lobbying story that happened during this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, all the arms deals that were done in that time, it's now one of the reasons there's, you know, it's, there's a big chill not just between Saudi Arabia and the Biden administration, but between the UAE and the Biden administration is because they were expecting all these F-35s that have not arrived. <laughs> so, so um, you know, I mean, and, and another reason I wrote about this last week in my Substack, that, you know, another reason part of the $2 billion from MBS to Jared Kushner is a bet that Trump comes back. I mean, these folks, these folks in the Gulf, they are not happy with how things lie with the Biden administration. Yeah. And, and for some of the folks I've spoken to, like Mary Trump, for example, who didn't think that Trump would be running again. And still, I don't think Trump would want to run again because he lost so spectacularly this past time. And he really hates that might be shoved into a race that he may or may not want to partake and participate in by some uh, some actors that are maybe no longer include Vladimir Putin uh, and, and are more focused over uh, in the MBS, MBZ realm. We will find out soon enough that election is looming. I, I want to thank you today for coming on, explaining this. I'm, I'm looking forward to chat. I just you just now told me about this the update with the court documents. I'm going to go right now to Vicki Ward investigates.substack.com. Do I have that right? Vicki Ward investigates. Yes, on substack.com. Exactly check that out. Thank you so much for your time today. Everybody give a follow on Twitter. And if you want the latest with what's going on with the Middle East, Kushner, Barrick, all of that stuff that's tied up with Kushner 
and Ivanka right in the middle. Please, please follow Vicki Ward. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody, it's time for Sabotage. So remember, remember that Manafort was caught up in the Tom Barrick scheme, but the statute of limitations may have lapsed on his role, but maybe not put a pin in that, but it hasn't, we know for sure that the statute of limitations has not run out for someone else because about the same time as Paul Manafort, who worked for free, by the way, but who was in on Tom Barrick's effort, about the same time he got pulled from a flight to Dubai, Tom Barrick figured out the Department of Justice might supersede him to add not-yet-charged co-conspirators as well. And Marcy Wheeler says, the most obvious not-yet-charged co-conspirator given in the indictment, and given the indictment, is Steve Bannon. And here's from uh, Empty Wheel. This is Marcy Wheeler's blog. Some of the people described in the indictment, most notably Paul Manafort, who recently found himself unable to fly to Dubai because his passport had been revoked, did things on which a five-year statute of limitations has expired, though there is a Barack-related action Manafort took in 2017 that is not yet time-barred. It's coming up pretty soon, though. But that is not true for the actions of Steve Bannon, described in the indictment. The indictment describes this meeting uh, U.S. Person 1 had with MBZ. On or about September 13, 2017, Defendant Matthew Grimes, that's the youngster who lives with Tom Barrick, who was indicted along with him, Defendant Matthew Grimes sent a text message to the defendant, Rashid Sultan Rashid Al-Malik Al-Shahi, stating, we're just going to call him Al-Malik from now on, heads up, Emirati Official 1 is meeting with a former United States government official, U.S. Person 1, an individual whose identity is known to the grand jury, on Friday. Please keep super confidential. Grimes further advised Al-Malik that the defendant, Tom Barrick, and Grimes, quote, worked hard to show U.S. Person 1 how strong of allies we are. Very hard. Barrick spent lots of time. Al-Malik then confirmed with Grimes that U.S. Person 1 was briefed by Barrick a lot on Emirati Official 1 and his vision. Grimes added that Barrick worked hard to show our friendship and alliance and that Barrick had met with U.S. Person 1 many times in the past several weeks about this meeting with Emirati Official 1 in which Barack was championing the UAE. <laughs> That's U.S. Person 1 is Bannon. Okay. All right. With all of that, it is time for the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted! No, wait. It's going to be a... Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I'm going to be indicted! Hold it. They can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted! All right. So for me, for me, as George Hahn would say, I'm going to go with Bannon. Bannon in the Barack, in the Barrett case and superseding Barrett indictments. And hell, I'll put Manafort back on the team since he's got one thing that the statute of limitations hasn't expired for yet. Then, of course, um, Matt Gates, L.A. Key, and Engels in the Middle District of Florida. I'm going to throw some rando Russians on there. And then Rudy and Sidney Powell and a seditious conspiracy charge for the Proud Boys. Mm, that's coming up real soon. Check out the final chapter, by the way, of Go Back to Where You Came From, Haiba Wujahat Ali on the MSW Book Club today. That's out today. Next week, we'll be taking patron questions for the author for Wujahat, so submit those in the next day or so to get them in on time. And I will be back tomorrow with Dana Goldberg for The Beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, vote blue over Q. I've been A.G., and this is Muller She Wrote.
Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Feds favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. M-S-W Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.